Welcome to the Social Flight Live podcast, an audio version of our live show, hosted every Tuesday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern at socialflightlive.com. Social Flight is brought to you by Aspen Avionics, Avidyne, Bose Aviation, Continental Aerospace Technologies, Lightspeed Aviation, Massimo Mighty Sat, Tempest Aero Group, and Whip Air. And now, here's your host, Jeff Simon. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Social Flight Live. I'm Jeff Simon. We have such an incredible and inspirational story for you this evening with our guest, Nilofar Rahmani, Afghanistan's first female fixed-wing Air Force pilot. And before we get to that, just a few notes as usual. We are seeing so many wonderful things start to happen in terms of aviation events throughout the country. And it's important to all of us that we support these. We're still not back to the level that we were before uh, COVID and the pandemic, but we want to support so many organizations that are doing Young Eagles and Pancake Breakfast and you know, food truck fly-ins and so many wonderful other things. I was just down this weekend at the Chatham Open House, Chatham, Massachusetts, and they had their uh, event, which was just wonderful to see so many people milling around and getting to see air and there were also uh, uh, cars that were there and and it was just a wonderful gathering and I want to encourage as many of those across the country to continue and that means we need to drive attendance to them and so to find things in your local area just go to socialflight.com or get the free social flight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices we have tens of thousands of aviation events happening everywhere and I'm sure there is something that you can do there that will uh, just inspire you as well and of course if you do fly, then be sure with the app to check in. You'll get points and be entered in Social Flight's Fly to Win Challenge. And I'm very excited about that because on July 1st, we are giving away an Aspen E5 electronic flight instrument. That's a $6,000 value and an incredible prize giveaway. We are always giving away prizes here at Social Flight, and we want you to win. So be sure to get out there and check that out. Now, our guest tonight is someone very, very special. Nilofar Rahmani is the first female fixed-wing Air Force aviator in Afghanistan's history. Her personal story and that of her family is a story of survival and perseverance to achieve her dreams in spite of insurmountable odds. Her book, Open Skies, My Life as Afghanistan's First Female Pilot, chronicles her journey and provides a unique and personal perspective of life under the Taliban and the transformation that occurred, which is really the important part, with the arrival of the United States forces in 2001. From living in a tent in a Pakistani refugee camp to the cockpit of a C-130 and being awarded the International Women, uh, Woman of Courage Award, Nilofar's journey is an epic tale of fighting against the odds for freedom and equality. I'd like to bring her here onto the show now. Please welcome to Social Flight Live, Nilofar Rahmani. Hi, how are you? Hi, Jeff. Great. How are you doing? Thank you so much. And I just want to tell you, I recently finished your book and I could not put it down. It was, it was a, like, 
I, I just was constantly, I had it on my, reading it on my phone uh, in the uh, Kindle version, and it, I, I was just carrying around a portable charger so I could keep my phone going and keep flipping through it. It was absolutely captivating. Um, so please share with our audience a little bit about your story and, and how, how it started, because it, it was truly amazing, and it really starts with your family before you. Thank you so much, Jeff. I appreciate it. First of all, I'm very thankful to be part of this program and thank you for inviting me to be part of this show and all the audience and grateful to be here. And of course, it's very kind of you by um, describing it, my life or my family's life in a, such a great way. Of course, every one of us have a story and I think my story, unfortunately, um, was just full of, I guess, I can't say it a nightmare. I think that difficulties made me and my family stronger. And it, it just taught me a lesson in life that failure is never an option. And the day that I quit, that is my failure. And that day I die. So I did not want it to die before my real actual death. So unfortunately, because of the life as a woman in Afghanistan, if you are a female, if in Afghanistan a baby girl is born, that is a symbol of shame for the parents. Their entire family is ashaming them because they give a birth to a girl. And that's not a happiness. And when there is a birth of a son, everybody is celebrating and they are happy. And, you know, as not only myself, every other girls in Afghanistan are suffering about this kind of idea and mentality. And... I grew up when there was a civil war and you know the funny part is that up to nowadays when people asking me I came to United States and they were asking me about birth certificate and I told them I do not own a birth certificate so I'm a bird with no borders and the story for that is because the day that I was born when my mom went to labor our apartment next to us just got hit by a rocket and the situation was so bad that they couldn't even make it to the hospital and since then, you know, the civil war and all that violence that started it and the most people that lose in Afghanistan, the freedom, the voice, everything is a woman. And as a six months old baby, um, when you become an immigrant and a refuge to a country that you don't know what your future is going to hold, that was me. And growing up in a camp that I didn't know what a real house looked like mm -hmm. and going out there, waking up every morning and not knowing what my future is going to hold. And the funny part is, again, that people, when I ask, like, how they just decided to be a pilot? And they're just like, my father was a pilot. He was a United Airlines pilot. And I was so admired him. And I wanted to be a pilot too. I just saw everybody's stories different because they had some kind of joy and they enjoyed it that they've been in the airplane or they had some kind of motivation in their life. For me, it was completely opposite because as a woman, we face so much violence and what to do, what's our right, what we can even talk about, what I can wear even, what is my right? Mm -hmm. If I have the choice or uh, even if I can choose to be educated, these are not the choices that you would make in that culture. Right. And me just dreaming of being a bird 
just looking in the sky and just wish to be a bird. That was something that I felt it would give me a freedom, something that I would just fly away and not get just completely get away from all this violence. And that's how the journey of um, flying and I guess being up where I belong started it. <laughs> you know, one of the things I found so uh, impactful uh, at the beginning of your book is that you go into the history of the region some, but but also about your father and your family, because one thing that's very striking is you mentioned the the cultural influences and the, and the incredible uh, uh, stigma and persecution of women in that but that is not the way that your family acted and that's not the way that you were raised and the opportunities you were given from your father and even when we talk about going to the a the the camp as a refugee that was him taking his family and escaping to a better place in a way. Tell me a little bit about how that influenced you. For sure. You know, sometimes we don't need a female um, to encourage us or motivate us. It can be a male or a female. For me, you know, I was one of the luckiest girls to have a parents who supported me every step of the life because I found my voice not many girls in Afghanistan found their voice because they didn't have the support of their own parents. But I was lucky because you're absolutely right. They grew up during the time, the time period that Afghanistan was the Paris of Central Asia because it was a freedom. Women had a voice. Women could wear what they want to wear. Women were educated. Women were in universities. They were in government. They were police. They were in the military. Nobody ever told them what they should do or should not do, and nobody limited for them. And that is the time that they grow up. All they knew was freedom. Afghanistan was a place that we had people coming from all over the world to just see Afghanistan. This is not what the world remember anymore because all they hear is the violence and the extremists. They don't know the real the beauty of Afghanistan that they grow up. And my parents, that's exactly how they grow up. They know the value of being a woman, what their right is, what has been given to a woman. And unfortunately, this time period, that 22 years, I mean, before that, when the Taliban came, it completely washed the brain of every young generation, which that was the biggest struggle for me to deal with. I mean, for me, it was easy to deal with the older generation because they accepted me, because they knew what women had in the past. But dealing with the younger generation was the most difficult thing because they grew up during the violence and dark time that all they knew is that they have to they have to take away everything from a woman. And I was very lucky to have a parents and my father, he'd been always an example and role model in our life, that he did everything in his life. That just, you know, like writing the book about his life and it just brings tear to my eyes how much a person can be strong. And sometimes I'm just like, dad, I'm your daughter. So I guess I got it from you. That's why I never quit. So um, he definitely been a great, great father to all of us. And the voice that I have today, and um, it's of course always I'm talking about him and makes me emotional, but uh, it's all about him because he always saved us no matter if he stayed hungry for days, no matter how hard he worked, 
he just always provided for his family. He tried his best to take us out of the refugee camp. And I remember as a little girl, when we got out of the refugee camp for the first time, that we went to our little apartment. And it was so, it was like a magical for us. For a first time, in the first time, we had a roof on our head. For the first time, we had a switch that we turned it on and it was a power on, electricity. And we had a running water. And we had like an actual, actual, like a, we thought it was a dream came true. And that's because of the hard work he did to provide and make life easier for us. And the stories that they tell us, like how much they sacrificed, they didn't even have a pillow to put on under their head. They put their shoes under their head and put the clothes under our head to sleep good at night. And it's just, I can't like talk enough about them, like how much they influenced us in our career and our life. And he always taught us at a young age that we have to be, we have to be the master of our own destiny because we have to ask for what is our right. Nobody is going to give it to us. And no matter what, we have to, we have to fight for it. And if we don't do it, nobody's going to go hand it to you. And that's what we will always remember. And that's something that it always keeps me going. Right. And, and you mentioned that, that he wanted to fly, but of course never was able to realize that dream, but you were able to, to obviously do that. One of the things that I find um, really fascinating is this very interesting perspective about how your world began to change when the United States forces arrived in Afghanistan and how that period of time that I think many Americans uh, now find it difficult with the with what's happened with with leaving it's easy not to see this perspective you have of this beauty of 20 years that began then tell me a little bit about that because that's really what made it possible you're absolutely right you know with um the the horrible situation that just happened recently in afghanistan the collapse of afghanistan in august 15 under the Taliban regime again, it was definitely a nightmare for nobody, including myself. In a million years, I never thought this would be possible. But, you know, one thing I realized that even men and women in uniform or with no uniforms, completely civilians, they all cried the same time I cried. They helped me days and nights around the clock to just make ha make it happen, to save my family, my friends, whoever could we could save. And they showed me the true meaning of humanity. And they all felt bad and they all been sorry like for what happened. And you know, at the end of the day, my opinion, anyone else's opinion, means nothing that what we would think it would be the best or not the best. But I just want for all of them to understand this, that even though Afghanistan collapsed, nobody, especially the generation that grew up during this 22 years of freedom, nobody would forget because what, I am one of the example. I have received the voice, the freedom of speech, the freedom of, I can have a voice, I can talk for myself, I can make my dreams come true, even in a society that women are unable to go to just that elementary school and they would be killed by their own family because they don't want their daughter to be educated. 
And we found those voices, all these changes that during this 22 years happened, it didn't go to waste. None of them went to waste because before that, the first time the Taliban got over the country, people were not educated. People had no voice. You wouldn't see any woman come and protest. No woman would raise their voices. Women would be so scared and they would hide that we either going to be killed or tortured or kidnapped. Now, I have seen, I was so proud to see all those women come to the all over the roads in Kabul, protesting that they were asking for their right. Of course, this is something that maybe not many people in the world would see, but this is the change. And this change will continue because those women will never be quiet. And I am one of the example of those 22 years of freedom and rights in Afghanistan because after um, the U.S. Uh, came to Afghanistan, of course, the presence of um, United States in Afghanistan was different than any other, I guess I can say, um, the past in Afghanistan. If the Russia came or invaded Afghanistan, this was not an invasion because invasion is like when you take someone's country, but this was not taking over the country because what we have faced is they just brought peace. They just brought, okay, women can do anything. Women can have a school education. Women can be part of Congress. Women can be educated. And these are the changes that they all sacrificed to bring for us. Mm. And I have been telling them that this is a huge, huge change. If the country didn't change like completely, if it is like political way or based on our government or the corruption. But the lucky part is that at least you guys give the woman in Afghanistan a voice that they watch every other woman in other part of the world and they say, we should not be quiet either, even if it will cost our life. And this is a symbol of change that each and every one of them brought. I can imagine that that, uh that that would be ex extremely uh, comforting and, and satisfying to hear for people who either served uh, in Afghanistan uh, for the United States or for NATO forces or or knew people uh, who did or had family members who did to hear uh, how impactful that time uh, really was. Um, now that time is what made it possible for you to actually get involved and start to realize your dream of learning to fly. Tell us a little bit about how that happened and, and what it was like getting getting through this opportunity. Definitely wasn't easy. I'm sure if so many other females or males, they might face that even in a country, first world country like United States. But I can just say at 10 level higher than that, that's what we would face in our countries because people were not ready for that. I remember the days that when you are when when I was with other females in OCS, things were different because you were inside a training compound and all you were dealing is just your instructors that they were used to it, they were normal to it, they had that enough good idea about a female being in the military to be able to teach there or be part of that boot camp or in the training environment. I think the story and the journey for us all started it when we just went to the Air Force and just getting all that looks that people would just look at you like you don't have appearance that you are here. And just 
sometimes it's hard how many people you can explain why you're here. If mm. it is a shame for a female to wear a uniform, why as a male here, why you don't feel shame to wear the uniform? Right. Wearing a uniform, why would a female would feel shame? Or not having, you know, anything that makes us feel like we are welcome there. And especially having everyone that seeing you fail. Like, you know, the for pilot training, the most important thing is your medical condition. Mm-hmm. And I had the doctors that they made me, because, you know, when it comes to the very highest level, like the chief of the doctors, and they tell you, you are sick and you have a heart problem, you're done. Nobody can save you from that. But I was, again, so blessed to be able to find that. And I had a mentors and Lieutenant Colonel Sossman, I'm sure he always, I always talk about him, how great he changed everything for me because I could fight for myself. I could just do anything, but I needed another voice by me to prove that they are wrong. They are doing this just because they want me to fail and quit. Because if I don't have my medical, of course, I cannot even start. And um, we were able to prove them wrong. I had to go to the base, like in a French hospital, and they did all the examination. And the report came completely fine. So I had no medical foundation. And um, and that's how, like, that was the start that we had to deal with. And just going to the training, being the only female that I had to start. Because in our class, um, we had another two females that I wish they were part with me so it would make it so easy for us we would be three voices and uh, it would be easier for us and um, and that was my goal that I wanted more females to join I wanted them to to change this culture because if it is one it's still something very strange for all the men but if you are more then it becomes something very natural for everyone right and fortunately that's something I had to fight for the for the long time and I was lucky to finish my get my English um, I guess training done and get the requirement scores and then I was able to start before everyone else with the same class that it was other males and I was the only female in the entire class and I can say entire um, training base because everyone have an eyes for you to fail and right. the day you're doing your, the first time you're in the airplane and you never flew in your life. And they are telling you that why you're giving this million dollar airplane to her, that she will destroy the airplane and she will crash. The same day that you are just trying to do your best and fly your solos. Right. And according to the same thing, you know, it's just so much that you have to take, you know, it's just like, it was hard that for me at the beginning, because still I was an Afghan woman growing up in the same culture, the same environment that everything is against you. So over time, I learned that as much as I try to defend myself, as much as I fight for myself and talk, it doesn't go anywhere. I just mm-hmm. have to be proving myself. I have yeah. to do well. I have to do more. And this is the only way I can just be best on my job and prove them wrong. And that's what I did. And that was the key for my success as well. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the interesting things, and just to kind of bring people along for for how things progressed, 
so you you signed up for a program that you saw uh, advertised on in TV. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> in a commercial, and and the challenge, of course, there is that they're the Western forces are trying to essentially change culture here by making this possible. And so that's very difficult. And they had to advocate for you and help you through when when the force they were trying to build of the Afghan National uh, Air Force really wasn't ready to change that way. And then it's up to you to prove to, uh, to prove yourself, as you mentioned. That's very true, because, you know, this is something that the United States and NATO forces wanted to uh, bring to Afghanistan. That was a big change. That was a huge change for this culture, because we never had that in the past. And this is something because the U.S. wanted to happen. And of course, the military, Afghan military couldn't say no to it. And when we just joined and we become part of it, it was difficult to, at the beginning, to realize if they, we were not welcome, then why they wanted us to be here. And then over time, we realized that this advertisement, that that's how I heard, because in Afghanistan, there is no civilian aviation school at all. Either you're going to the Air Force to be a pilot, or if you have a, you know, a good financial situation and you can just go abroad overseas and get your wings. And other than that, there's no way. And that dream almost almost disappointed me that I was thinking that I would never be able to do that. I would be never able to go overseas to get my wings. And, um, and all of a sudden, magic happened. And I saw the advertisement in the TV that they are recruiting females into any military uh, forces. And um, they also can uh, join the Air Force and be pilot as well. I, I, I love the, the story of you learning how to fly. Once you made it through the, the, the challenges to get to that point, you started in, this, in, in basically a military version of a Cessna 182. And uh, I loved reading about how you were, you were doing wonderful on, on takeoff and on maneuvers, uh, maybe not so much in landing. What was the trick there? That was actually the hardest part. So, you know, for me, I've never been in the airplane like since I was like the day that I was flying from Kabul, where that was, that was the place that I was living. And we went all the way to another city in Afghanistan and we had to take a plane to go there. And I was like 18 years old and I never ever been in the airplane. And that was the first time I was in the airplane. For someone that never been in the airplane and being a growing up and just for the first time fly, so of course, here's the day that I start doing my, starting my um, like basic uh, flight training, basically how to fly an airplane and how to taxi, take off and land. And I had so much struggle to land an airplane and I just getting so disappointed, like why I cannot do this? Why I get this happiness and feeling so free as soon as I take off, why this coming down it just, I always felt like maybe this is something like, I just don't want to be there. I don't know. And it never made sense to me why I can't do that. But over times, you know, I realized I had a great instructors that one day I was keep changing instructors. Like, what is the problem? Why I'm not getting this? Like, why this is not clicking in my mind? 
like how to flare, how to land an airplane. And then the problem was because I was short and the seat for 182 sits low and you have the prop spinning in front of you. And then I couldn't see up front. I couldn't see the end of the runway. I couldn't see my sides. And I, I, I had like completely lost, lost a vision of how to land an airplane. And then one of my instructors figured out that she's sitting too low, so she cannot see anything. Plus, she cannot get the feeling of flare. That's why before she even flares, she start, you know, like flaring too high because I can't see it. And once that clicked and we fixed that, I was so happy. I was so motivated that I just wanted to fly every day because I was getting disappointed. Like, why I can't do this? Why is it so impossible? But um, that was like a very happy moment for me when I realized, yay, I can finally can land an airplane. So that was my biggest struggle. And now being, you know, getting my uh, flight instructor license, I always make sure that I will mention this. If a student is struggling with that, I will keep in mind that I would just no notice this first thing more than anything because the experience happened because I, I mean, you get a positive experience when you experience it yourself and that's what had happened to me. And that was my biggest struggle till I found a genius that figured it out and made my life easy. <laughs> I just thought that was wonderful. Like you're doing so well at all of these things, and and you just, no matter what, can't figure out the land. And no one figured out until the very end that you couldn't see. You thought this was normal. Like everyone's supposed to be able to land an airplane, having no idea how to see out. Um, and all of a sudden, you can see and it lands perfect. That was wonderful. Tell um, tell us a little bit about your the progression as you went from the 182, you spent quite a bit of time after that in, in the military version of the 208, the caravan. Uh, caravan was actually, because Afghan Air Force was starting from zero. Whatever we had in the past, they were all destroyed and the US were building our Air Force because we didn't have any Air Force left. We had none. And um, we started getting the training airplanes, which started with 182s. And for the first couple years, they were sending all the pilots to get their wings and go under the UPT, undergraduate pilot training, under IFS training uh, in the US. So they got to fly the uh, T6s, but in Afghanistan, they start to do the training inside Afghanistan so they can train Afghan pilot inside Afghanistan. And I was the second group to be trained inside Afghanistan as well. So going to the C-208, I absolutely love that airplane. I can't imagine, like, I was laughing at myself when we got our wings. I was like, it's so funny that I had struggles to land at 182s, but I enjoyed the every step of flying my UPT training in 208. And um, if I get to fly now, I'll be so blessed. I absolutely loved it. And that was something that the Air Force started it with because we didn't have much for the fixed wing. And over time, we got the C-130s, we got A-29s, we got the jets. And for the beginning, and when we started it in 2012, that's all we had. And it was absolutely re reliable airplane. And the only problem with it was that when we graduated and start doing our mission with that airplane, Afghanistan is a very dangerous mountainous area. And um, when you are too low, you're scared you're gonna get hit by a rocket or the Taliban gonna shoot you down 
and if you're too high you don't have a pressurized airplane because the mountains there are super high it's like the we would be crossing 13 14000 mountain feet mountain and it would be difficult for us that and i just think about it now how we did it with no oxygen and we were afraid to go low we get hit our only option was to just fly higher than the mountains and we survived it but uh, i definitely had a great experience and i definitely enjoyed flying the 208 you uh, you had a pretty significant impact also on policies uh, even within the afghanistan uh, air force and it seemed that a lot of that surrounded that the 208 was used to ferry people but also wounded and and also the uh, remains of uh, fallen soldiers and tell us a little bit about how that changed because for the most part women were not allowed to fly those uh, uh, Paris soldiers. Um, that's actually one of my, I can say my greatest experience and my greatest um, moment that I was able to change it. And it, I would never forget that. Like I have some memories that I even like sitting here thinking about it. It just brings tear to my eyes the same time as bring happiness into my heart as well. and. When I had received my wing, I was stationed in Kabul Air Force Base, and um, basically, as far as if I'm wrong, you can correct me, in FA or IKOs, there is no rule and law which says that females are not able or it's prohibited to carry HR missions or Kazavag missions. Not much for Kazavag, but HR missions, like, in general. And... Over time, I at the beginning, I thought that might be something for all over the world. For some reason, maybe a religion reason or beliefs or whatever it is, maybe that's why. And then when I learned that's something that Afghan Air Force created that because they don't believe on women that they can do well, they believed women would see fallen soldiers that they lost their life, they would get emotional and they would crash an airplane kill everyone. Probably that's what they believed. And that's something that it was bothering me so much. And I do believe on that. If I don't do it now, when we will do it? And if I don't do it right now, when we will do it? And that will make sense to me that I was so upset about that, that I can't even like express that feeling. Why still I am the equal as these men that flying this, this same airplane, we are all doing the same mission, Afghanistan, all over, like even the presence of the NATO and um, the U.S. forces in Afghanistan, Afghanistan was still a dangerous place. There was a still war going on with ISIS, with the Taliban in northern part, in southern part, with along the borders with Pakistan. And there was every day we would lose those fallen, like those soldiers, they lost their lives. And every day we had to provide for them, even if it is, uh, it was Kazakh mission, HRs or ammunition, anything that we could do, we would provide them because that was the only source of air support we had to just mm -hmm. support. And um, I can't believe that as a woman, I was prohibited to do that mission because I signed up for that. I was ready and 
the way that they looked as a, looked at us that we are weak and we would get emotional that always bothered me and i do remember that one of those missions every day there would be six missions and all of us would go a different part of the country and to pick up or either support them with ammunition uh, food supplies or casavags anything and all five birds are gone and there's one me left so that i have to leave at this certain time and we just supposed to go to Bos um, there is like an area in afghanistan they call helmand province which is very very dangerous area up to even that time of very peace in afghanistan and going there there was a still war there and i was supposed to just go there to do different type of mission and we are along the route and I get a call from our squadron commander that he's telling me that I have to return because they found out that there is an HR mission that I am not allowed to do that mission and I was lucky that I was the aircraft commander at that moment so I made a call that I disregard this call even if I have to lose my wing because this is something that it's not for safety of the flight this is not for something that it's against the safety and if i disobey this if i it will be wrong if they take away my wings because i want to prove that this is wrong what they do because not all over the world does this and i just um disregard the call i kept continuing going to my flight and once we landed there even the doctors and the nurses there they this was something that they told all of them that if it is a female, you're not giving them this missions or you're not um, putting that in the airplane. And when I landed in Helmand province and I said, we are the only airplane left for the day. And if we leave, this is not, nobody else is going to come. And they were just um, disobeying me to just let me do that mission flight, including my own co-pilot. He was afraid and he's like, I don't want to get in, in you know, in trouble just because you want to do this mission. And I needed his support. I needed him to stand behind me. No matter what, we're going to change this. We're going to change this law because this is something against us and we can prove and prove them wrong. And I told him if he's scared for his life or his career, I can fly this airplane solo and I can go. He doesn't have to be with me. And after all those arguments, I win. So we got the HR mission done and we landed in Kabul squadron and Kabul airport. And I have our squadron commander assistance that he's standing right in the flight line. He's like, you have to go to the squadron commander's office. And I was ready for any type of answers. I wanted to let him know I'm okay. The mission was successful. I didn't get emotional. I didn't crash anything. And we are all alive here and everything is great. And when I walked into his office, I was ready for something horrible gonna happen. He's gonna tell me I'm done and they're gonna take away my wings. So I disobeyed the squadron commander. And then he just smiled at me and he told me that I can leave. And I never expected that from him. I thought something bad is gonna happen, but that smile proved for me that I did something right. And that brings happiness to my heart that after me, the other females there, they had no prohibition. Like they could do those missions easily without anyone telling them this is against the law. Mm -hmm. That is truly amazing. And, and the fact that you had that, uh, 
that impact and were able to change things. And I think you did that in, in more than one area of making a making a tough judgment call and, and saying that you had things needed to be essentially proven in that. Um, there was a lot of challenges that, of course, you continued to to have uh, from your own uh, comrades, I guess, in, in arms there. Um, there was a big difference between, I think, at least described in the book, between the Afghan um, military folks and the NATO and U.S. Uh, military folks there. Did you see things start to get worse at a, after a period of time, or what? What is it that changed that that started to evolve the wrong way in in the progression of Afghanistan? Well, that was the risk that I have thought about it. That's what I will be facing because of the culture and the country I live and I'm from and the religion I belong to. But I never thought this will go too far. And the day that I wore the uniform, the day that I signed up for this, I wanted to serve my country and I wanted to change the culture. I wanted them to know we are living in this century and things should change. Even if we are a third world country, we still can make it a first world country. If we allow other 50% of the society to be a human and do great things. And if you take 50% of a society, a society will never grow because you're completely taken away half of the society. And I, I thought this was my job and this was my duty to advocate for every woman in Afghanistan. If I go to schools, if I just go to the news and show to all of those girls or all those parents or the families that I am an Afghan female, I am an Afghan Air Force and I wear the uniform and I fly a plane, maybe this will change them. Maybe it will change the society that I still manage all of that and we can be better than this. And for me, it was just advocating that I wanted them to grow. I wanted them to find their voice like I did. And unfortunately, our society, it's always, if a woman raised their voice and if a woman wants to be successful, they always try to quiet her, silence her. And for me, I never thought I did something wrong. I always thought I was so proud. That's how the feeling my own family given me, my close family, that I serve my country and that's all I knew. I never knew I'm doing anything against the culture. I didn't know I'm doing anything against the religion, but this, that's how the society viewed me. For me, just advocating and trying to encourage more girls to come and be in the military or be a pilot and change the culture and the country, it costed all of us our life because the society was not ready. Society was not ready for a female. I was accused of, I am not a good Muslim woman and I am working with Americans and the mullahs and all the people in the society. They told me that she has to be honor killed because she is going against the culture, she's going against the religion and our culture, our society of female shouldn't do this, shouldn't work with a different people. And that's how they are thinking. And I, that's something that I didn't grow up with in a family that they are so open-minded. We never thought about this stuff. For right. myself, I see every human as a human first. 
I don't see gender, I don't see skin, I don't see religion, I don't see any of this. For me, a human is a human when they respect you and you respect back. When they talk to you, you talk back. And you just, you're just being a great human. That's the definition of a great, great human, that you don't see any of these uh, things that I just mentioned. And that's how I believed. And for people that changed my life and other girls in Afghanistan, I never had that negative mentality and I never thought about it. Mm -hmm. And for the society, of course, nowadays social media plays a huge role. And I think our my biggest or my first uh, threat that started it, you know, it's a culture in Air Force or um, not so much in the civilian world, but in the military. If you are flying a solo for the first time, they would throw you in a think of uh, water or a pool to completely get wet and it's cold and doesn't matter which time of the day it is. And that's what they wanted to do for the first time for a female in Afghanistan. And I respected that. So, of course, they had to do this for me as well. And there was my two American mentors. And because there was other there wasn't any other Afghan females and um, on the pilot training. So they there was two Americans and one was American, one was British. They just hold me to throw me in a pool of water and people around the base or the interpreters that they were there, I have no idea who done that, but they took a picture of me and posted it in social media. And of course, the society, the society that they kill a woman if they talk just a little bit negative about anything, they just said, basically, she's not a Muslim anymore, and she's being baptized, and she needs to be on her count. And that day, when I heard and saw all those advertisements against me, that how the society is trying to destroy me, it completely broke my heart. And that is our that was just a small start of the threats in our life. Yeah. And, um, you know, like we believe... Even if you are in the same blood, if even your sister and brother, but you're all different. And that's how I realized from our own uh, extended family as well. Then that's the first time they have seen us and they become. We were not only dealing with the mentality or the threat of the Taliban or the ISIS. Our own extended family were against us to honor kill us or my father because he supported his daughter to just fly a plane or wear a uniform, which on their mind and their eyes, it's something completely negative to do mm. or for a woman to do. I, I think one of the, it, it's very, you know, it's hard to, to see and, and read the story and understand that on a personal level, you're achieving these these amazing breakthrough things in your career, and your career is starting and you're realizing your dreams and you're converting people to understanding that you can accomplish these things. And then at the same time, the society outside the gates of basically is, is go, it's going the other way, is getting more and more oppressive, finding out what you're doing. And it got to the point that you were having to sneak into the base and, um, and everyone's in fear for their lives. It's a very difficult um, you know, uh, thing happening at the exact same time. Unfortunately, for me, I, I I don't know how to describe it. I hate the burqa and including, I'm, I'm sure every woman does because they have a bad experience. They mm -hmm. had 
been forced. I was a child seeing my mother to be beat up just because she showed her foot because she had to run to the hospital to take my sick sister to the hospital and she forgot to cover her foot, but she does have the burqa on and she got beat up by the Taliban that she basically, she showed her, her legs. And, you know, like as a child having that horrible moments and disasters that you all been through. And for me growing up, I just had never wanted to see it. And that was a time for me that the situation got so hard for me and my family that my, if I didn't have the support of my brother or my father to take me to work and bring me back, I don't think I would make it. I don't think I would be alive now because every day we had to change the route that we are taking. I was a free human when I was in the sky, when I was flying, when I was in the base, I felt proud and I felt strong. But when I was just leaving my home, coming to base, I just felt like a prisoner. I just felt like those women that they felt or still feel nowadays that if they show their face or if they don't do what the society expect them to do, they will be killed or their family is going to be killed. And that's how I felt. As soon as I got to the base and changed and got my uniform on, I was completely a different person. I was so proud and I was ready to fight. But for safety of my family and my whole entire, like my sister and my brother and my parents, I, we had to protect us because we had no other type of security. Nobody in our government or mm, I can say any of them at the level of presidency were willing to support a woman or help a woman to grow or take their security. And that's something that we all had to take um, on to be able to survive. Did you feel kind of foreshadowing at that time that the kind of almost experiment of freedom and equality at, uh, that, that was there as long as the Americans and NATO were there was likely to, to not be able to weather the long term? Or what was your thoughts at the time watching that? I had a mixed feeling because for me, advisors or Americans or NATOs, they could do enough. They could do just in a certain limit of their ability. They were not able to go with me in the society to just take my security. This was something that I expected this from my own government, from my own forces to be able to at least provide that for me. As a woman or my father or my brother, we could do enough to support ourselves. We couldn't do much. We couldn't, we couldn't fight, I don't know, 100, 200 people just three of us. But I had a mixed feeling. I thought this will change because I had people in the Air Force, people in uniform, tell me that I have this voice because Americans are here. If the Americans would leave, I would not have this voice. But I completely disagreed with their opinions because I never believed that. Because I thought if I have the voice now, no matter what, I will still keep it. No matter, that's why we are here, because we want to bring the change. And that's how I was trying to heal myself and think about it. And then over time, when the situation got worse, I had that mixed feeling that doesn't matter how strong or how motivated you are and how much you are fighting for your right and your voice, 
there is still so much gaps and barriers that you can't go for like more forward something will stop you and um over time when the threats got very severe and it costed almost my brother's life after he got shot i was like i was to the last of my hope that things will change i thought i fought so hard to change it but it was almost impossible because just one voice maybe i changed one or two i would be happy but still it wasn't enough and right. i was scared that it would never change anyone no <laughs> matter how much i will raise my voice or do more yeah your um your journey as this was happening then took you to the united states to learn the c-130 um first i'm sure a lot of people want to know <laughs> what it was like for you getting through and, and, and making a jump from a Cessna caravan to a C-130. And, okay. and I want to hear, of course, what transitioned after that. But what that this you, I, I really have to embrace this dichotomy of having these terrible things happen and struggles outside, but the peace and sanctity and elation of the cockpit and learning um, something new. And the C-130 was certainly a challenge. Definitely it was. So for me, um, the only reason that I really wanted to do more, I wanted them, I didn't want to just, and I wish I ever got to fly the jets because that's what I always wanted to. That's what it inspired me because when the U.S. Um, A-10s were flying when I was a child, when the U.S. came to Afghanistan, and um, that's what I remember, their sound, their speed, when they were flying, and the next thing I would hear the voice, but I wouldn't hear or see the airplane, and I would be just like, oh my God, like I would be so, like I can't even say that feeling, I still act like a child when I even think about it, but I wish we had that, but that's all I had. It was flying the two weights because we didn't have more than that. I wanted to do more. I wanted to even prove myself that I can do the same as my other colleagues do. Because um, I would just like give you this small example of being a female and every day I would walk to the squadron and I would see my colleagues, they would take their names tags off the board the day that they would be flying with me and they would put someone else to fly with them. And for me, just walking in there because I couldn't travel with my uniform, I had to travel with civilian clothes and then change in the base just for my security. And I would just look at the board and I would see it's someone else is flying with me. And then as soon as I walk out, the name has disappeared. And it all broke my heart that all of them, they just, they didn't want to fly with a woman because I don't know what they were thinking that I am going to get emotional or again, something gonna happen or I'm not good enough. Even though I graduated the same time as they did, I did the same task that they did. And I just wanted to prove myself even more because my actions only could do me favor. And that's what I did. And I was so lucky and blessed to be able to be nominated because training for the C-130 was very expensive for us to send abroad um, like five students to go through that training. And the first plan was that we would fly in the King Air and then we would just transit to the C-130. And then we are in uh, San Antonio in uh, Lakeland Air Force Base and that's where we had to get a certain uh, English score to be able to start again 
um, the C-130 training. And I was able to complete that. And then we moved on to start our training. And then the last thing we hear is we're going to go start flying the C-130 straight. There's no King Air. There's no other training. And at the beginning, we were we were a little like had less uh, confidence how that's possible. That's like completely different moving from one engine to four and what is going to look like. But uh, the transition was um, not super difficult because we already knew how to fly the airplane. System wise was different, but I just to be honest that I learned a lot flying the like I started it learning to fly with the glass cockpit, all those fancy equipments and MFDs, PFDs, and all those fancy things. And when I went to fly the C-130H1 model, and that's something people would use for the World War II, and that was completely steam gauges, everything. I had to fly an NDBs that nowadays nobody does, and I had to take a pride flying that. And I was it made me a better pilot. Like I really enjoyed the training and I enjoyed learning every day because of course a good pilot is a pilot that never stopped learning. And I realized that as much as I had the training, it wasn't enough. No matter how much combat mission you do, no matter where or which zone you're flying, you still, when you move on to a different type of even airplane, you realize how much you learn. And I realized like how much more I learned, how better I got because I got to fly those steam gauges and I had to do stuff that I never done even. And I got my wing and uh, it was very interesting. And I be honest that I really, really enjoyed every step of that training, even though it was like a huge jump, but I absolutely enjoyed it. Made me Go ahead. I, I, love, I love that the uh, that the hardest thing that you had to do in the C-130 that they hit you with was an NDB approach of all things that don't even exist anymore. <laughs> that's so true. We were at um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, and that's where, the, where I was trained. And the day that I have my check ride to be qualified C-130 pilot, otherwise I will fail, my option was I am flying the NDB out of all these cool approaches that you can do nowadays. And I never learned in training that I would be flying NDBs because not really many people use it. But again, it made me a better pilot to think about it and learn it and just do it great on your check ride day for the first time. And flying, um, it was it was challenging, very challenging, but it really made me to be better. That makes a lot of sense. Now the the end the end of your C-130 training was of course a uh, a very 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 difficult time. Tell us about what what was happening as as we come to the top of the hour here. I want to make sure that we get in uh, what brought you to the United States and how you had to make a very difficult decision. Unfortunately, before I come to the United States, I was aware of the threats were made against me and my family. And as I mentioned before, that the source of security for me was my brother and my father. And that costed my brother's life almost twice that he got shot, but he survived it, thank God. And it was a moment that I was missing my flights for 30 days. We had to relocate several times 
in a month, in a year. And we were living basically like a refugee in our own country. And Kabul is, whoever been to Kabul, they know how small Kabul is. And it's hard to hide even from your own extended family. And that's what it made the life so hard for us. I was aware of all of that, aware of the threats that made us flee into India for two months because when I received a letter, threat letter, letter from the Taliban and we all just tried to get kind of away from it but I never quit because I knew if I quit the matter is not because what they put me through it's the point that again it was a woman and she couldn't handle it and um, I was missing my flights I wasn't able to leave my home because I was afraid people are following me people are following my family and um and this is what my advisors um, noticed. And when I came to the U.S. to just still keep my skill, still fly, and still learn something new to fly, but still be able to at least do my job. When I came to the U.S., of course, busy with the training, with the English, with my C-130 training, I was unaware of what's really happening back home. And the day that I almost almost actually like so happy to give my parents the news of I am graduating and I am coming back home to show the women could do more. This is the new airplane I'm flying and this is my achievement for the country, for the, my colleague to see me. And I get a horrible news from my family that they are leaving Afghanistan again to Pakistan because they cannot do it anymore. The security getting so high because even though I left Afghanistan, the beliefs of honor kill is still in the mind of our relatives and the people in the society that if she left, if they could hurt the little baby in my family, that's an honor kill for them. They will be proud that they destroyed something that brought shame to the culture and to the family. And I was so busy with the training that I was unaware of what's my family going through and you know the day that I remember even when my brother was shot we were in the hospital and I cried by my brother in the bed that I'm gonna quit and my my father never told me to quit he told me if I quit I'm not coming back to that home and then I got my answer that I can't quit and the day that I hear that from him the pain that he would tell me that they are leaving Afghanistan again and they can't do it anymore. And there's no place, no family for me to return to. It was a heartbreaking moment for me to choose between my career and my family. And of course, nothing is important than a family. And that's what I did. I chose my family and I quit my career. I knew I'm not welcomed anymore. I know if I go back and that is what our government warned me that if I go back, I will be put in jail and tortured and for what? Because I wanted to fly an airplane because I wanted to serve my country. And that is when, um, it was a hard moment. I still can't believe like for something that I fought so hard, I risked my family's life entire, my sisters and brother and my parents and now they all lost their homeland it was a hard hard moment for all of us to even go through this and for me that i have fought so hard to get here and now here they win and i had to make that decision and this is when i resigned in the u.s and of course going to a country that you don't of course i knew the language that made my life so much easier but not knowing the culture, not knowing where to start. 
not knowing what my future is going to hold because anything I have achieved back home, it was not counted in the United States. I had to start from zero. I had to go back to school. I had to do everything to get where I can be, which is in the sky. And mm -hmm. I quit because I, as I said, the day that I, if I decided to quit, that would be that would be my failure. That day I failed myself and my family and I never did it. And I stayed strong to fight all of that. And, and I'm so, I'm so blessed to be here and uh, to be able to fly again and um, to do more and achieve more dreams that, that I have still. I want to do more and I do want to be still a voice for all the women that they're stuck in Afghanistan still, that they lost everything. It's, it's, it's amazing. And you're still, and you're still fighting. I find, so you, you, you saw this, you were granted asylum in the United States, unable to go back um, for fear of your life and your family. And um, I, I, it's, it, it also, it saddens me a little bit though, that, that the FA didn't recognize your hours and, and that you had to start over again, because the idea that you were flying American aircraft, that you were trained by American troops, that you were, flying everything that you did your c-130 course was on an american base with american soldiers next to it, and and that none of that would be recognized and that now you're starting from scratch and you're but you're doing it you're you're you've got your cfi and you're you're pushing ahead that is something that you know i have always said it no matter which part of the world i am living or along or among who I'm living. As I, I'm gonna repeat my word again, that humanity, it actually costs nothing, but it means a lot to someone that started it like me. Because when I came to the US, of course, I, none, none of things that I have done, all those missions I have done, all those flying hours I have done, all those educations and anything, basically was nothing. I had to go back to school. And of course, for me, start in a country that I have to build everything from zero. It was something impossible, especially situation that my family had to struggle back home and not having so much support. You know, I was very lucky and I always call myself a lucky person to have all these great people along myself, like, I heard that one of the flight schools, it's in down Fort Myers, Paragon Flight School, they gave me a scholarship that I would be able to fly again because the FAA didn't count any of those and they covered the whole cost for me to be able to fly, to get from, again, be a student pilot and start from all the way to my CFII. And this is something that, as I mentioned, the humanity, I have received a lot in the US that I felt that you know, why should I not do more for this country that they have given me so much? They have provided me something that I have been missing for years. I haven't even done anything for this country. And that's what encouraged me to do more. I want to do more and this is not enough. And this is just a start. And I will always be grateful for those people that they made my life easy in the US and especially for the people that they have that kind of heart that give me the, my dreams back to be able to fly again and um, which can be very costly in civilian world and especially in schools in America. And uh, it was a huge gift for me and I will always be thankful for them and their humanity that 
it definitely meant the world for me, which got me where I was belong again. Well, it's it's such a, a wonderful story. I would encourage everyone, if you would hold up the book, please, uh, for everyone to to uh, to get your book, Open Skies. It is it's a wonderful read uh, and it's inspiring. And I think it's also very healing, not only about your own journey, but to teach everyone how you can always keep going. It doesn't matter what happens. And you are truly an inspiration, I think, to so, so many. And I'm grateful that you've come here on Social Flight Live. And I know that uh, you're only at the beginning of the next chapter. Uh, and we can only imagine what you're going to do from this point forward. Thank you. I appreciate it. And it was my absolute pleasure to be part of this. And again, for everyone that listening, life is too short and it's not happening again. And it's giving us only one opportunities. And the only thing we learn from this life is never, ever take the life for granted because every day is passing and it's not waiting for us. And if we think today is not important, actually that day is important because you're losing one day in life. So, Again, never, never die before your death. Always dreams are impossible. And my dreams got me where I belong and made my dreams come true. And I'm sure it will happen for everyone. No matter what age, we all can be inspired and encouraged at any age. And let's just make it happen. Well, Neil Afar Rahmani, thank you so, so much for coming on Social Flight Live. It is a true pleasure to have you here and help inspire everyone in general aviation. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And to all of you out there, thank you so much for joining us again for another evening of Social Flight Live, for taking time out of your life to join us for another inspirational story. And we really do appreciate that. We'll be back next Tuesday, June 21st, with aviation medical examiner extraordinaire, Dr. Brent Blue. We will be talking very, very frankly and candidly about some of the challenges with uh, the FAA medical process, uh, mental health, and some of the other things for which Dr. Blue is a very strong advocate. So I urge you to certainly join us for that show. It's going to be extremely informative. We are then off for a couple weeks, and we are back on Tuesday, July 12th at 8 p.m. Eastern time with Alan Trader of Lightspeed, and they're going to have announcement of a new product as well as some other things, so that will also be a wonderful opportunity to join us and uh, be on top of the latest information. On Tuesday, July 19th at 8 p.m., Matt Yunkin is going to be here celebrating freight dogs and so many cool aspects of that part of our aviation world. Until next time, thank you again for joining us here on Social Flight Live, and I wish you all blue skies.